0: Well, uh, thank you very much. It's um, great to be here with a, a lot of um, folk we haven't seen for a while and some that we haven't seen before. So it's very encouraging for me to, uh, to come to a place where um, the Lord's name is lifted up. And that's my intent today is to lift his name up. And if there's nothing else that I leave you with today, and that's the thought that Jesus is worthy. There's no other name under heaven or under, on the earth whose name is worthy to be praised and honoured in the way that Jesus is. I'm going to spend a lot of time actually outside of the Gospel of John today. And I just, uh, many of you will be familiar with, uh, with John's account. I'm hoping that you've done your homework over the last little while and looked at that. But I've, what I intend to do today is to, to do three things. One is, firstly, shine a light. If you think about shining a light, I'm wanting to illuminate that which God declared from the beginning of time and how that fits in with what has happened in John and also the other gospel accounts that we'll look at briefly. The second thing I want to do is to hold up a mirror. And isn't scripture like this often? It's both a light, it reveals God and his son, Jesus Christ, but it also holds up a mirror to our own state and our state, before if we are in that situation before we came to the Lord Jesus but even now it is a it is a mirror that we should hold up regularly and look at ourselves examine ourselves and finally I want to again shine the light because there is a a hope that I want to leave you with a hope that even at the beginning of time even thousands of years before Jesus went to the cross or a thousand years Jesus went to the cross it was looked and prophesied through Scripture that Jesus would rise again and return for his saints. I really want to leave you with that great hope. And I think that's particularly important when we start looking in the mirror, of course, that we do that. So when I want to look at the death and burial of Jesus, I want us to look at through the eyes of the prophets, firstly. And for that reason, I'm going to look at two parts of scripture. Initially I'm going to look at Psalm 22 and we'll go through there in some detail and then also in Isaiah 53. Now there are many other places we could look at as well that proclaim many of the things that came to pass, but I want you to to go away with the thought that these things that happened to Jesus weren't an accident. They were as Peter mentioned us to to us last week were established at the foundation of the world I was a young Christian and this is a little while ago now as a young Christian i often thought what would it have been like if Jesus didn't have to go to the cross it seems such a sad and sorrowful story that a man who had never done never sinned had to die and we were and he'd been lost to us and that's a very simplistic uh, fleshly way of looking at things but I want you to look back Through the eyes of God, through his prophets, and through the psalm, and realise that this was the only way it could be that Jesus had to be taken and had to be taken to the cross in order that a a relationship with our Father God could be restored. So I'm just going to ask you to um, uh, come to me, with me, to Psalm 22. And I'm going to indulge you a little bit here and I'm going to read most of Psalm 22. I'm going to leave a little bit to the end. So just bear with me as I find my place. But you might like to spend that time finding your place too. I'm just going to read it through first and then come back to a few particular aspects of Psalm 22. Just meditate on this as we we read it through. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potshead and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People just stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And at that point, I just want to pause and we'll come back to the second half of, or the second portion of Psalm 22 later as we um, revisit that toward the end. But I want to ask you the question and it's a rhetorical question can you see the gospel being played out in this passage of scripture that was penned under the inspiration of the spirit of God some several hundred years before the event and how marvellous that is how reassuring that is that there is nothing in God's purpose that is not declared and there's nothing that is out of his hands this whole event of Jesus going to the cross and him crucified and then being buried in a rich man's grave is no accident. It's something that has been prophesied from, a, uh, from the many, many hundreds of years ago. Let's look at some of those specific verses and see how they match. And you might like to uh, keep your hands in uh, a finger in Matthew and also John here as we look at them. The first verse that we... Uh, highlighted there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can look at Matthew 27 and verse 46. There, that's exactly what Jesus had said, and that was uh, mentioned last week. Alloi, alloi, uh, I can't remember the exact uh, translation, but it is, my God, my God, why, has my, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus had said. Uh, On the cross, and this is what is spoken of in the Psalms. Have another look at um, the next verse that says, All who seek me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Again, we can see that accounted for in Matthew uh, chapter 27 and verse 39. And the other one, He trusts in the Lord, they say, Let the Lord rescue him. Matthew 27 verse 43. And here's one that just takes a little bit more of an explanation. This one speaks of the way in which often the Jews were referred to in in Scripture. And you'll find other references for this. So this is the verse that says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. These bulls of Bashan were the the powerful Jews of the day. And of course, as we recall, leading up to the crucifixion, it was the leaders of the, the Jewish, the religious leaders that encircled Jesus it was of course the romans that executed uh, jesus but it was the jewish leaders that ensured that that was to happen so the reference there to the strong bulls of bashan refers to the jewish leaders of the day now we can turn to john chapter 19 and verse 28 and this puts us right in the heart of the account of jesus death and burial my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my stung tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you'll recall how Jesus initially was uh, offered sour wine, which he declined, and then toward the end, when he stated, I thirst on a branch of hyssop, which is uh, 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 a herb that is used in the Passover, on the end of that was a sponge uh, that was offered to him in response to this call, that I thirst. So you can see that beautiful parallel there, that beautiful... Uh, Explanation through uh, Psalm 22. Then finally, or not quite finally, but dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. It needs to be remembered that at the time that Psalm was written, the institution of of, uh, crucifixion was not even known. It was not known to the people of that day. And yet in precise detail is this set out. And of course, at the time they would not have Uh, understood that in that context but with the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of the the knowledge we have of scripture now we can see exactly how precisely that prophetic word was um, uh, laid out in that event. And finally just in Psalm 22 the, the verse that says they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. When it was realised, when they, they had a garment, um, the Roman soldiers uh, noticed that in his undergarment, they decided not to, not to tear it apart, which might have been the normal thing to do. you have more people there than there is things. You'd divide it up. In this case, they uh, cast lots for that final uh, piece of clothing. And so we see just in, again, precise detail how exactly this was being played out in the events described in the Gospels and in John's Gospel in this instance here where it's uh, carried in verse 24. So that's just one little entree and I just wanted to turn also again to, uh, to Isaiah 53 because um, in many ways Isaiah is uh, a way you can preach the Gospel and it was preached to the people of Israel at that time. They could not imagine, I guess, the way in which it would play out and that is why that as Sally was saying in the warm-up that many of the Jews expected to see Jesus coming in victorious and displacing uh, uh, those who had taken over their country the Romans and indeed when Jesus comes again it will not be to uh, to bring um, to be a saviour it will be as a glorious king a king that will re-establish his rulership over the whole earth But at that time, it was mistakenly thought that Jesus would be merely a political leader that would uh, cast off the Roman oppression that was prevailing at the time. So let's just look at um, Isaiah 53. And again, I'll beg your indulgence to read a, a lengthy portion of Isaiah 53, but you might like to follow along. I won't be reading all of it. I might just start at the end of um, chapter 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and he will, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession. Or the transgressors. Again, I just want you to realize that this was written hundreds of years. This was uh, written at the time of King Isaiah, one of the better kings of uh, of, um, of Judah, and this was a time of um, great revival. But it was also a time in which the nation of Israel and the nation, in particular, and also Judah, was far off, and this was a word that was being written to them. Uh, specifically to uh, grant them a hope, a hope of a future and to uh, help them to understand the events as a nation that would unfold before them. Of course, they had not realised that at that point this was going to happen in hundreds of years. I want you to just look also at the specific aspects that were mentioned there and how closely they tie in with um, with the events that are outlined in John and also the other Gospels. One in particular I just want to draw your attention to is in John uh, chapter 19 and verse 41. And this is a special moment, I think, in the uh, whole aspect of of the crucifixion and death and, and burial sequence that turns a lot of things on our heads. This verse reads, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This relates to the act of John, uh, of, um, of the uh, rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. He was well regarded in the, um, he was one of the council of the Jews, he was highly regarded, yet it says he, he was a secret believer, he was a secret follower of the Lord Jesus. And he gave up in spite of the intent of the Jews, which was to consign Jesus to... Uh, Uh, Probably the the graveyard which was reserved for criminals in the valley of Gehenna. But it was Joseph that came and pleaded for the body of Jesus. And it was Joseph who placed and dressed the body and placed it in a, a tomb that was reserved. He had already set aside for his own death. A tomb that had never been used. And here we see some beautiful parallels because if you remember, if you think of the incarnation of Jesus in Bethlehem, it was he as a child, as a baby, that was placed in a trough, an animal trough. And in his death, he was placed in a stone tomb that had never been used, something that was perfect and unpolluted, let's say, where it was the intent, the original intent was to send Jesus to a disgraceful end in the in the valley where the, the bones of many criminals would have been laid, in the valley of Gehenna. There's another verse that I want you to uh, look at and we highlighted this one before in the psalm. And that is that it pleased God. It pleased God that Jesus went to the cross. We sometimes think in our natural selves that this was something that was... Anathema, that Jesus has been taken out of his hands and put on the cross and and sent to a place of disgrace. Just meditate on this verse for a moment. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise bruise him. He hath put him to grief. I'm reading from the King James now. I think it's a better rendition of this. When thou thou shalt make his soul an offering to sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased Yahweh. It pleased Yahweh that Jesus went to the cross. It was a grief to his followers. They were confused. They were despairing. What is going to happen to us now? Our saviour has been consigned to the place of death. We will never see him again. This was the thoughts that may well have been going through the minds of his followers. And we know, of course, that earlier that Peter was... uh, rebuked because he had said to the Lord no you're not going to go there you're not going to go uh, and the Lord rebuked him for his impertinence his, uh, he said get behind me Satan but this is what God's purpose was God in his intense longing for his creation to have it restored back to him wanted Jesus to hang on that cross it wasn't an error it wasn't a mistake it wasn't plan B it was plan A it was instituted from the beginning of time I just want to, again, highlight the contrast between his incarnation in Bethlehem and his death. I mentioned the one before. Jesus was born uh, in the manger. At his death, he was placed in a rich man's tomb. His birth was announced by angels. His death by darkness and an earthquake. Now, that's not found in John. It's found in one of the other gospel accounts. And you'll recall at the time... uh, there was a period of three or so hours where there was darkness enveloped the whole earth and there was earthquakes. And uh, it's interesting that that is not picked up in each of the Gospels, but it is picked up in at least one of them. At his birth, visitors came down to to bow down and worship, bringing gifts. You remember the accounts of the three wise men coming from the east and the shepherds bowing down to worship at his death he was reviled and mocked and people scattered now there were some that were there of course in his presence following his birth the firstborn were slaughtered you recall that Herod uh, when he found out that there was a prospective king and a rival for his rulership Made a decree that all the firstborn sons be killed, and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of young boys were slaughtered. At his death, many graves were opened. You can read that in one of the gospel accounts. At his birth, Mary was present. At his death, Mary was present. She was the only one. She was the only one of course having given birth to Jesus that was there at the end. We can surmise that because at the time of his birth the other Marys would not have been there. It would have only been Joseph and the heavenly hosts that witnessed the event and of course the three wise men and the shepherds. None of those were present at his death. At his birth Mary was present. At his death she was also present. And you remember the heartfelt um, declaration from the cross when Jesus looked at John and said to um, uh, John, to Mary, his mother, she is now your guardian. She will take care of and and to John I should say she is now your mother. Just a beautiful picture of his concern for his own mother at that point. And finally in In Bethlehem, Jesus was presented as a helpless babe. And that's highlighted when we think about the Christmas story. We think of a a helpless babe in a manger. On Calvary, he was made helpless on a cross. In the natural sense, he was helpless on the cross, but in the spiritual sense, in the supernatural sense, he was powerful on the cross. You recall that there was no need for him, his legs to be broken and that incidentally is another uh, fulfilment of prophecy that was made at, uh, in uh, Psalm 69 I think it was and various other places where the Passover lamb was never to have its bo- bones broken but on the cross it was Jesus who gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him it was he gave it up himself and so while in the natural sense we look at him as helpless it was him that sent and declared, and we see it in the resurrection account, he made sport of those powers and authorities that thought they had done away with the Son of Man. And at this point, I want us to come back and look at ourselves. But well, I'm going to hold up the mirror. This is the central part of my message this morning. and This is the holding up of the mirror. And in some ways you say, well, where are you going with this? The mirror is in relation to the burial in the duration of the burial, you'll see that obviously Jesus was placed in a, in a tomb. He was there for three days before he rose. And we'll hear Adrian speak about the resurrection next week. But there's a certain sense in which when we come to Christ, we, are, we identify with Christ's death, but also we, we are buried with him. In Colossians 2 verse 10, I think it is, it talks about being buried with him in salvation, in, in baptism. Now, I'm not saying there's a literal burial in that, in that sense, but there is a sense in which we identify with Jesus' death and burial. What I'm going to challenge, and it's a challenge to me too, is to think about whether well, indeed we have buried that old man. Have we buried that which Christ has won completely? Have we buried that which is of the flesh? And I'm sure all of us can say, no, there are certain aspects that haven't been buried. They ought to have been buried. And maybe they have been. And maybe we go from time to time and go out and dig a little bit of a hole and see how the old man's going. And um, maybe uh, we talk a little while with the the old man and uh, maybe we dress it up and put lipstick on it and think, you know, this is pretty good. What I'm talking about here is the sense in which sometimes we go back to our old life. And as you get older, you're more inclined to do this because you think of things, there are things that maybe trigger thoughts and memories of habits, of events, that bring sense of nostalgia. There's nothing nostalgic about sin, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing nostalgic about entertaining that which God has died for and has sought to do away and has done. So he's declared that on the cross, he said, it is finished. Now you can see that uh, talking about many aspects. It's the final payment for sin. But also there is an aspect of Jesus, and you'll see that all through his ministry. He not only came to save, but he came to cleanse. And when he said it is finished, he declared that that cleansing was being done as well. So not only has he saved us from the penalty of sin, he has saved us from that compulsion to sin. Now I'm not saying that there is such thing as um, sinlessness in this present earth. While ever we live in our earthly bodies, we have the capability of sin. But this is not what Jesus came to establish, an imperfect body. He has given us everything that enables us to live a life that is pleasing to him. And that is why I ask, and ask us to hold up that mirror. Have we indeed buried those things? And you'll realise that many of the letters that are written to the saints of God, and Paul is particular about this, not only to um, uh, the Galatians, but also Colossians, it talks about having been made a new creature, a new creation. Not just the old one uh, with... uh, the lintel painted in his blood that says, well, this one won't be killed. But this is the one who I am seeking to restore to the fullness of what I created in the garden. One that can fellowship truly with me. Have we been buried? How does that work in in practice? Now, I'll just give a couple of examples. There was a A neat little story that I heard on a sermon tape many years ago about a young man that came to Christ in the UK. And um, the pastor in his wisdom, when the young man came to him and said, I enjoy going to the movies, didn't say, oh, you must never go to the movies. It was a Methodist church, by the way, so he could have easily have done that. The pastor said to the young man, next time you go to the movies, take Jesus with you and see how he enjoys it. So... Dutifully, the young man went off, and there's a neat little aspect of this story. When he went to the ticket box and bought the ticket, he asked for two. And the lady in the ticket box said, well, there's only one of you. He said, no, I want two tickets, please. So he went and sat down and uh, made himself comfortable in the the movie house, and the movie started. And after about 10 minutes, he said, "Um, Jesus, are you enjoying this? Are you enjoying this? And then when he realised that jesus wasn't enjoying this he got up and said we're going now that that's a a corny little story i know but that's the way in which sometimes we need to put ourselves and in a personal way it's sometimes a, a place where we need to to ask jesus to come into a situation in which we normally find as our realm our little sphere of influence or our sphere of activity that no one else can enter it might be looking at the internet, it might be some recreational activity, it might be some form of relaxation. And I'm not saying any of those things are inherently wrong. But if those are things that do not please the Lord, that is a place that we don't want to be for very long. And for me, it might be looking up um, a political blog or something like that and getting carried away with the discussions that are going on there. And I'm finding myself having to go, Lord, is this... Is this what you think? Is this what how you think about these aspects? And that I think is the way. That's the way in which we need to constantly check ourselves. Being placed into a situation, not imagining for a moment there are places where God has no place. This is our little realm. This is where we um, just do our own thing. There's not such a place. And this is a challenge to me, and it's a challenge to you, I know, is to be always mindful of taking the Lord Jesus into every situation we find ourselves. Whether it's a place of work, of study, of recreation, in the family home, in times of conflict, in times of celebration, it is, there is no place in which we should not imagine or even know that Jesus is there with us. Is the mystery of the gospel real in your life? In Colossians 1.27, we talk about, Paul talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do we believe it? Do we believe that if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, that he lives in us? And in so doing, do we have that living hope? A hope of a life with him into eternity. Not that something that begins at death, but a life that has started from when we have entered from death to life, when we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. That's that time in which Christ entered into our lives, into ourselves. I just want to leave you, just to finish off this mirror segment, is that verse in Acts. It's a, very, it's a short verse in Acts 17, verse 28. It reminds us that, in Christ is in all, because this uh, verse says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now this was uh, when uh, Paul was in Athens and he was talking to the, um, the atheistic and the philosophers of this age when he had a, made a very powerful declaration of what the gospel was and who Christ was. And he concludes it by saying, for in him the Lord himself, we live and move and have our being. Do we believe it? Just to end you on a a light note, and I said at the beginning I would take you from light uh, to to a mirror and back to light. I just want to turn back to Psalm 22 now. And you'll see that there's if you read through psalm, and I'd encourage you to do that, we go from a transition to where God in Jesus is saying, he's talking about the forsakenness and the separation that he's experiencing and the anguish that he experiences on the cross. It's not just the physical, it's the spiritual separation. It's the spiritual separation we should experience if we're apart from Christ. But it flips over into verse... 22, when there's a victorious declaration. It says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. This is speaking uh, of a present reality for us, but it's also talking about a prophetic reality in the future where the people of God, uh, God's chosen people, uh, the Jews will be restored. Well, certainly a large number of them will. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Now, this was very timely for the people of that day. It had a prophetic meaning right at that time because... It was at this time when the Jewish people had been uh, separated from God because of their uh, rebellion against him, they'd turned to other gods and in God's judgment he had delivered them over to their enemies. And some of them may well have been reading this when they were sitting in Babylon in, uh, in exile. And this was, the, this was the hope that they had that God would come through for them yet again. But it speaks to us because God has come through for us. And it speaks of a future time in which God will come through for the nation of Israel, for those who have rejected him, but in the future will be restored to him. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. Now, how precious is that? As a promise to us for those things that we read in Scripture that are prophetic in nature, that have not yet to come, we see how precisely the prophet... The prophets of old spoke clearly of Christ's deliverance, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And now we read of those same prophets declaring of things that are to come. And how confident can we be, seeing how precisely those things were fulfilled at that time. Going on to verse 26. The poor will eat and be satisfied. For those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. That is God's hope. That is God's declaration for us. And finally, in verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now, that's a prophetic word that is yet to come, and and, and there are different ways, perhaps, of seeing how that might be played out. It may be played out, in the millennial kingdom where God restores a a place in which his rulership is exclusive. And just finishing up the last three verses, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. That's a beautiful um, picture of that final statement on the cross. It is finished. It is finished, he said on the cross. And in this last verse, this last part of the last verse of Psalm 22, it it states that he has done it. It is God's purpose. And just just to finish up, I just want to read a little poem. Um, Hill of glory... Bloodstained cross standing, divine justice rendered, set us free. To live in victory, one of an empty tomb and life everlasting. Of God reaching down to redeem a people destined for eternal separation, but now for a life of worship. Of him who laid in a manger, but now dwelling in his saints. Jesus Christ, cornerstone, living temple of God warrior-priest. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for the declaration of your intent towards your people. It has been one of restoration and reconciliation from the garden to this very day. And we know that it is an unfinished work for those who are still far off. And so, Father, we just pray that you'll take the words of your scripture and apply them in our lives, that we will hold up that mirror, and see that there is no place in which you're excluded from. And that as we come in sincerity and a desire to please you, that we will indeed be cleansed, both in word and deed and action. That we may truly honour you and give glory to your name, and that your name be lifted up. Our oh, Father, strengthen us by your Spirit that we may do that in Jesus' name.